Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Character Reveal. It's the show where we reveal people's characters. You know how it goes. As always, I am your host, Dom, a.k.a. Brother Dom, and I am joined once again by my pleasant co-host. Would you like to tell the people who you are? Hi, everyone. It is me, Stephanie. I am Captain Steph on Twitter. I am the Snow Queer on Tumblr, and we are joined by a pretty awesome guest today. We're excited to have her. Um... Her name is Lila Vandenberg, and she is a writer for the BBC, among other cool things. Lila, do you want to tell them a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I, um, I'm i an American. I live in the UK. I write for an English uh, TV show called Uncle. Um, I uh, My background is in directing. Um, I've made uh, some shorts, I've made a bunch of music videos, I'm in the process of uh, getting several features off the ground, um, and several other TV projects coming up, um, and uh, just been doing this for a while, and it's starting. I'm starting to get more visible, but but it, you know, that, that saying it takes 15 years to become an overnight success is a little bit that situation, <laughs> so so I'm, I'm gaining a profile now, but behind the scenes it's been going on quite a while oh cool congratulations thank you um so what all do you uh what all do you do on these shows that you work on um so on my current show uncle which is now um we just finished making the third season what we call a series in the uk um the third series, and uh, it's airing current. It's like airing currently on BBC iPlayer, which is like an online channel, and then it's also playing on <coughs> BBC One uh, on Fridays after Graham Norton. Um, and I am one of two writers. Um, I'm an associate producer on the show, and uh, I am the second unit director. I do the the show's uh, a musical in addition to being a comedy drama. I do oh, the. Wow. <laughs> I do the the music videos and I do what's called second unit. So basically every everything that the main unit director doesn't have time to do, I direct. Um and we are a couple, uh Ali and I, we have we have basically made this show just the two of us together. I mean obviously the the team behind it is huge, but um it is our baby. We, you know, we have written all of it and uh directed all of it. And we are very tired now because <laughs> we, we edited all of it with with a couple of editors. Um, so so we just like, cr- you know, like Christmas, like the day before Christmas Eve, we finished. Um, and then it started airing on like January 1st. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> so it was a little crazy. Um, but yeah, it's, that's it's quite the turnaround. Yeah. But it, it, it was a it was a satisfying process. And I feel like we feel that this season, season three is the most sophisticated writing wise and that um, it's a good kind of three acts for a show. And, you know, I'm sure you have felt frustration about English shows, like not having a lot of episodes or being (laughs) over very quickly. Um, But it's like nice to kind of be in a universe and like work in it and like get the story told and then like leave um, and not overstay (laughs) before it starts to get like, way too many episodes and people are like oh this thing's this thing is really like outlived its usefulness <laughs> yeah that's definitely nice to see uh series or seasons or shows in general that kind of they have a story to tell they tell the story they get in they get out and you have you don't you're not left with a bad taste in your mouth of like the 
seventh season where things kind of went off the rails. Thirteenth <laughs> season of Supernatural. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know it's really funny. People, people will probably be shocked. I'm really fanish and I love genre stuff. And I've literally only ever seen one episode of Supernatural. It was just like a random episode. And the reason, <laughs> the reason is because Supernatural in its like first season. I was like, I don't have time to get into this now, but like this show probably will get canceled at some point and then I'll just like binge it. And I've been saying this show will get canceled at some point and I'll just binge it for like 11 years now. How long has it been? <laughs> so like literally it was like a different decade when I was like, I'll get around to Supernatural. Yeah, I think I was in high school yeah. when I started watching it. There's a lot, probably a lot of anime fans, like, with Bleach or something, like, oh, man, I'll wait till this is done. It's only going to be a couple seasons. Yeah, that totally, uh, that happened to me with Bleach. I tapped out at a certain point. I think I got, like, 90 episodes in, and I'm like, oh, this isn't going to, and it started to get that, like, fight expansion where, like, you know, like, a fight lasts five episodes, like a, like a Naruto special. And I was just yeah. like, <laughs> I can, you know, and I even started collecting the box sets, and I still haven't watched them all. And I know now it's finished, so I should probably catch up. But then I kept hearing people say, like, oh, the Soul Society arc is the best one. I'm like, oh, I've seen that. So I don't, yes. know. <laughs> I don't, know, what the, I don't know what the motivation is at this point to catch up. It's it, Honestly, it's like, at this point, it's just, it's it's like the reason people collect, like, whole runs of comics, even mm-hmm. though they don't actually care about what's in the comic. Just, it's like a collector impulse. Like, I... I started. I started doing this, and I'm gonna finish it. Yeah, and I, I am. Te- I'm a terrible completist, and so like, it's been a difficult like challenge in my life to be like, no, you don't have to. You don't have to see every episode. I do have to see things in order. It drives me crazy if they're not in order. Um, but like, you do not have to see literally every series that everybody's <laughs> raving about, and you won't have time. And they won't all be great. Like everybody will say they're all great, but they're not all great. And time will tell which ones are actually really great. Especially yeah, since, uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, it's funny, like, right now, like, so pe- there are so many shows that different people are talking about, like, a lot of HBO shows, but other things, too. And I'm just like, I am getting so many mixed reviews. I have not heard a single person say the same thing about Westworld. I haven't watched it yet. Yes, same. No one has same. agreed on it. Like, has, has anyone said, oh, Westworld, that's a mediocre show. You can watch it or not. I've only heard this show is amazing or this show is overrated trash, but I've never right. heard someone say, eh, catch it if it's on. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's the thing. The tricky thing with prestige, you know, prestige and quotes TV and like sort of premium cable TV um, is there's now kind of a, an aesthetic, a production aesthetic that's like really strong. And like the, you know, they're always getting sort of film actors to come like play these parts in these TV shows. And it's mm-hmm. like the material will be good, but sometimes the execution will still be kind of boring. Um, so it's it's yeah. hard to know without kind of sampling whether it's going to be something that grabs you. Um, right. And I think it's so hard to tell from other people like saying that something's amazing if it'll be amazing for you. It kind of it's sort of like with reading fic, like you just are like, oh, is that my set of like things that I actually want from a fic? <laughs> like, oh, it's not okay. Well, then I don't have time for this. Or like, I don't know. Like I. <laughs> I, I am watching The Young Pope, and I'm ahead because I'm... How is that? How is that? <laughs> See, this is one of those ones that it is indescribable-ish. Like, it's... Um, uh, batshit is, like, the best word I have to describe it. It's, like, a fever dream. It's 
it's like what I feel I like shows that are very much tapped into somebody's id. Like I hate like very super ego shows that feel like writers repressed all their like all their overt desires and like sort of manifested them in some kind of sleepy, like kind of repressed way. What I will say is like the young Pope is all id. I don't know if it's my id, Um, but I'm watching it because I can't, I'm very fascinated. I need to see how it ends. Uh, But it's not exactly like, it's a show that I think also defies a little bit sort of normal criticism because it's not that you can be like, oh, well, the structure. Because I'm like, I can't really tell you about the structure of this show. It's it's like the entire thing feels like a dream sequence a little bit. And like, you know, my boyfriend and I are watching it together and and we're like, you kind of need to watch this with somebody because like every five minutes there'll be something where you'll be like, did they just do that? And you need to like turn to somebody and say like, did they just really just do that, sweetie? I can't believe. And, you know, and it's like, you, you kind of, it's like, I think it's not a fun show in a vacuum. It's a fun show to gossip about. So, like that, to react to? Yeah, I think, so I think, I think there's things, I saw it sort of picking up a fanish <coughs> audience. I actually saw, like, weirdly, some Muriel Ice people kind of like, oh, now what are we going to watch? And then, like, <laughs> migrating over to the young Pope. And I'm like, this is a really weird intersection, but, like, I think, and I said this in another podcast, I think there's something about the young Pope innately that feels like an AU of something else. Like, just like the <laughs> subject matter, because it's, because the premise is so, like, impossible. Like, there would not be a, you know, like a 45-year-old American Pope who smokes and drinks, like, like Cherry Coke Zero. So what kind of show is it? Is it like anime or cartoon or <laughs> no? Like it's action an HBO or? show, it's isn't a, it? Yeah, it's an HBO show, but it is. But I think it's a co-production with Canal Plus, and um, uh, I want to say, I want to say it's like um, Sky Atlantic, which is like this, which is a very prestige channel in the UK that that buys all the HBO shows, and so nobody can watch them because nobody has that channel. Um, but they make really <laughs> good stuff. Um, and it's very but, European, like it's a, it's a Europe, it's an Italian writer, producer, director, um, and it doesn't feel like an American show. It, it's got a lot of American cast in it, but it feels very Italian and very like, <laughs> like operatic. Um, so, I mean, all I can say is like, you'll either love it or hate it or, or neither, or be very baffled by it. Um, and it, and almost like, I feel like you actually have to watch it to find out whether it's something like that you will enjoy aesthetically. Yeah, it's too long playing the Pope. He's got, and yeah, and and I've seen a few people online being like, is this Pope going to fuck? Like, that is like a lot of the reason I think people are watching it. Um, and I, and I can feel a growing, a growing sense in me that I also want this. And I, <laughs> like, I didn't at first, I didn't have any expectations, but now I'm like, I yeah, feel I kinda like, want that I kind of want that to happen. And there are, like, there are kind of ships in this show, but, like, this show's so weird that it, <laughs> it's... <laughs> that reminds me of that, uh, if you ever watched King of the Hill, there was, like, a show within a show. I forget what it was called, but it was, like, this guy, I don't know sure if he was actually a preacher or disguised as a preacher, but he would just, like, show up at these places. It was, like, a tele- telenova type show yeah and he would always just like blow away all these bad guys because like oh it's a preacher and he would like fling out guns out of his robes like oh yeah you better pray i can't kill you or something like some one-liner and that just sounds like something like that it i mean it's it it won't disappoint it is like it does have stuff that's kind of salacious like it just is it's quite salacious is the only way i can describe it so that's my that's my young pope review it's not an amazing or a terrible it's like uh 
Hmm. It's like several question marks in a row. Yes, yes, exactly. That that actually <laughs> would be a really good tagline for that show. Several question marks in a row. <laughs> I rate it four out of five question marks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, very, very nice. Um, if I might ask, uh, how did you go from, I guess, being an American to working like in the BBC arena? Mm. Um, so the the show that I'm currently on is made by a company called Baby Cow. Um, so they're an independent uh, production company. They're not actually run by the BBC, but we're distributed uh, okay. on the BBC. So they're like our channel, but we're made by this company. Um, they have made some really good shows over the years. They made uh, a show called Sensitive Skin, which I don't think is very famous in the U.S., but it has been remade. They did The Mighty Boosh, which I was a huge fan of. Um, yeah. They did uh, Gavin and Stacey, which was very popular in the U.K. Um, it's like kind of a, a rom-com drama, uh, you know, just about a couple of characters. And they tried to remake that, I think, in the States a couple of times, and it didn't quite work. Um <laughs> And, uh, and they made us and, um, the, the, how I came to work there is I, I made a short film, um, called Bitch and it played, uh, Sundance and then it, and then from there kind of went on to do a festival run that was, uh, you know, in, in short film terms, very successful. Um, and I got like an agent and a manager off of that. Uh, and uh, a a lot of, uh, sort of production you get these things called generals. They're like these production meetings that you have to go on and and they don't really lead to a lot, but you kind of get to know all these different production companies. Um, so it was sort of at that level for a while. Um, I came to the UK temporarily to work on somebody else's short film, uh, as a production designer. And while I was there, I, um, met with Ridley Scott's company, um, which does his movies, but they also do commercials and music videos. Uh, and uh, I sort of accidentally, I say it was very difficult for years to get into music videos, but then sort of accidentally lucked into music videos because my short was quite musical. Uh, and then I did uh, music videos for a couple of years. That makes absolutely no money, by the way, especially like <laughs> indie band UK music videos. Um, but it was a fun production experience. And then while it was going on, I was still more interested in kind of the narrative side. So I was writing, I wrote a bunch of spec pilots. I wrote a bunch of spec features, um, which is, uh, if, if people don't know what spec features are, they're like, nobody has asked you and nobody is paying you. So you're like, I have an idea. And you write the whole thing up. Um, when you are, when you don't have an agent, when you are not signed, um, you can't just go in and pitch and, and increasingly you can't just go in and pitch and get money and, and make something. You usually have to have proof of concept. Um, so either a short film or a feature script or a short film and a feature script for the same idea, um, and a treatment and all, all kinds of things. So, uh, just a few years of just writing and writing and writing treatments, writing, um, short films, feature films and pilots and eventually a pilot uh, that I co-wrote with Oliver Refson. Uh, his idea uh, was this uh, pilot uncle, um, and so he got uh, he got something into production before I did, and that's how I went from being an unemployed uh, writer director to an employed writer director. <laughs> Very big step. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Important step. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty. That's a. Uh... A pretty interesting journey. I don't know too many people who really follow that path. Uh, it's kind of, it sounds 
fun. I'm not sure how fun it was at the time. But yeah, it was, it was not as much fun as it sounds. I mean, I, I definitely, it is complicated, but I definitely think, like, unfortunately still in in film spaces, it's kind of easier to get the door open when you have, you know, a writing partner or directing partner or somebody who is not a marginalized identity um, kind of uh, vouching for you. So uh, the even though I, you know, I had more experience and more samples, but I think um, what finally kicked that door open for me was having a male writer who could vouch for my ability um, uh, and, and co-written material. <laughs> so we're kind of in the corner because we just decided to, like, do corners of marginalization. So, like... I can handle the mailroom. Steph can handle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So we can team up and kind of trick the system. Absolutely, (laughs) and it is, and unfortunately, it is kind of, it is kind of like that. And I have a lot of friends in similar situations where um, they'll have one thing going for them and one thing that makes it very difficult. Uh, And and there are just way you know, there's not enough jobs. Um, They're not enough jobs. Period. But like when you look at the percentage of like. In Hollywood, I think the the amount of women directing Hollywood films is somewhere between two and four percent. So yeah, it's a little bit low. It's I'd a little say. bit low, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's not much higher for male directors of color. It, I, you know, I can name more, but um, but you will find that you're kind of naming the same people over and over again, and sort of like in a year, there'll be one or two projects of any profile. Um, by a director of color and then additional projects that are you know like about marginalized people but will be directed by a white guy like you know a hidden figures situation (laughs) so um it kind of makes it seem like the market is like swamped with uh opportunities for marginalized people but it's not actually the case it's just the subject matter is getting ever so slightly more diverse it sounds yeah i think i think step one is that hollywood i think step one is hollywood is like oh this makes money that's like that's actually the way it typically goes and it's like oh now we can't actually deny that diversity makes money so now we have to convince financiers over and over again each each new time a new project comes up that this will make money. Um, and, you know, and, and even with like sort of white women in lead roles, I think they were finding that the sort of top grossing films of the last few years keep having that situation. And yet every year it's sort of a surprise that like, oh, you can have a middle-aged white woman in a sci-fi film and that'll do well. And if it's like that, that happened with Gravity and then it happened again with Arrival. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Hidden Figures is it like kicked Rogue One off of the Rogue One, which was another diverse film, um, kicked it off of the, but it's like all these things are sort of diverse along one axis. So it's like Rogue One has lots of men of color, but a white lady in the lead. And then like Hidden Figures has a, like a, a black female cast, but it's like written and directed by white people. But it's like that, unfortunately are sometimes the steps that it needs to get it made like get it vouched for so people are like okay we feel safe doing this because it's like a risk (laughs) but it's not that much of a risk um and it's kind of getting to the point where you have you know i think moonlight is is perhaps edging out of that category of looking like bets are being hedged on all sides but that's still an independent film it's an independent film that's done really well but it's not technically a hollywood film 
Um, What's weird to see how much, um, uh, to your point, how often they'll say that you know you can't have marginalized voices or people in films when that's consistently proven not to be the case. Um, I mean, even if you're saying you know we're only looking out for what cis white men want to see, but Star Wars, like you said, still made a ton of money. The Fast and the Furious movies, one of like what the top one of the top grossing franchises of all time, and that's extremely diverse across race lines and they're adding they add at least a few more women every time so mm-hmm. it's always kind of been like a male-dominated movie but they're like let's at least start to go backwards on this Murphette principle a little bit right and these like are consistently just breaking boundaries and yeah it's it's like schlocky movies but so are transformers and yeah and all kinds <laughs> of other films and but it, like you know and the, the thing about and i don't i don't really have like i don't you know i'm, I'm kind of what they call like a, a I'm into vulgar tourism. Like, I don't believe that bad, you know, sort of what we call like trashy movies don't deserve to be made. Like, I think they have a purpose. And I believe like, I believe in escapism entertainment because I think there's a lot of people that actually really need it. Um, And I feel like there's something, I don't like the snobbery of like, everyone should like, these like very intellectual films and this is the only kind of like like horror is not a valid emotion to be feeling while watching something comedy is not a valid emotion you know aroused sexual arousal is not a valid emotion and those are the kind of films that get like stuck in the bin of like genre um and i feel like they're the films that like really travel like they're they're very universal and obviously like there's a difference for me between like the stupidest of those four quadrant movies and then like I think you can make a very smart, very funny, trashy action movie. Um, or Absolutely. Not even smart, but just like aware, aware of itself. It knows what it is. And I feel like things like Fast and the Furious are not confused. You know, like they're not confused about what kind no. of art they are. Um, not at all. And, I, and it's like as long as people keep... I mean, people have been complaining about this. The sequel thing, literally, like I took a class... I took a class uh, in film school that was like, it was about censorship. And literally in the 20s, film critics were like, they're totally out of ideas. Everything is a remake. Like, you know, everything's based on like some existing IP. Like, you know, it's either a play or a book or a remake of a play or a book and like sequel. You know, it's like that complaint has been around for literally a hundred years. So that's like, if you go back into like archeological digs, you see like stuff from like Babylon. It's like children these days just want to carve their tablets. No, yeah, one, yeah. Wants to, no one wants to learn oral poetry anymore. <laughs> yeah. Kids these days and yeah. their media. Oh, with their social media. Yeah. I mean, that will, that will always be the case. And it's that kind of that fictional looking at the past with like a fictional, eye of how romantic and wonderful it was when it was like probably mostly not wonderful for almost everyone i mean the past sucks that's why we changed it i yeah. mean like <laughs> even for the people in power like would you rather be like a rich white dude in the 40s or a rich white dude now like well your life expectancy is better now so probably now and yeah. we have cell phones so like and cell phones <laughs> are pretty cool i think life's just generally better for everybody i mean even said like People, I think, once say, like, oh, everyone on the train just reads newspapers all the time. They won't talk to each other. It's like, people read newspapers now. They're like, look at all the intelligence going around. People want to be smart again. Yeah. And, like, some time ago, they would have been looked at very poorly. I, I mean, I, I do agree with the I, – I do like what you would consider, quote-unquote, dumb media. 
Um, I mean, I think the Transformers movies are awful, but every time someone likes one, I get excited for them. I'm like, I'm glad you like this. I, I If you would cut off the racism and sexism in them, then I'd have no problems because I like dumb yeah. things. It's, it's, you look at the games I play. It's kind of the robot, <laughs> the robot voice stereotypes, which I think is very much like um, Michael Bay's, whatever his it is. I mean, it, it doesn't seem that complex, but it's like, it is definitely like... Uh, uh, a girl in cutoff jeans writhing on the hood of a car with like an American flag, like waving. <laughs> but I remember there was like I can't remember which I can't remember which Transformers film it was, but the trailer had like and I counted like six American flags in the background <laughs> of like various shots. Um, I think so, it's the one with Marky Mark in it. Yeah, that one I, was like ridiculous. <laughs> and I I feel like it's a shame. I mean, this kind of goes into like a larger thing. This this could get I could go on and on about this, but basically like. There's something that happens in fandom, right? Like, I don't know how much you guys read fic, but, um... Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. But, like, I feel that people who write fic, it, and it's mostly women or people that code female, and it isn't it isn't completely, but it's, like, a female-coded space. Um, yeah. People who are involved in the fic community have to be very aware of the kinks and the sexual impulses that make them tick, and, like, what they actually like in a story, because the tag system sort of implies, like, I need to be able to find what I'm into, and I need other people who are into this to be able to find my work. So there's kind of a quite literate, people have quite literate sexuality. I mean, this isn't always the case. There's a lot of, like, really problematic fic being written. But, like, women are, (laughs) when women write erotica especially but like quite a lot of different types of things they are forced to be interrogated as to why like you you have to do this self-interrogation is like why am i into this like why does it this appeal to me why do i want to tell this story and i feel unfortunately with a lot of guys um who are storytellers storytellers they don't have to ask themselves that question and with that comes a default assumption that everything they think is normal like it's just whatever the median sexuality is in the median kind of point of view so like yeah i I don't have a problem with people writing problematic stuff because i I, like i've i've said i will say many times i almost find high key problematic stuff that knows it is more enjoyable than like really like subtly yeah like well-intentioned but like really um uh like i'm gonna try to use an example of like I think Deadpool has a lot of problems, but I adore that movie. And I really liked Mad Max Fury Road. And I feel like while you can make a feminist argument about Mad Max Fury Road, you can also say it has a lot of really objectionable things in it. But it is sort of high-key trash that knows. And it's wearing itself very loudly and aggressively on kind of all fronts. And you can pick a lot of different arguments out of it. Out of it. Whereas a movie like yeah. Bro- a movie like Brooklyn, which I don't know if anybody here has seen, based on the book. I haven't even heard um, of it. <laughs> I still it, love it. <laughs> it was this, it's this movie I saw, uh, was it one year ago, two years ago? Um, and it's about an Irish girl who comes to uh, New York in, I think it's the 50s or the 60s. Um, and it's written by, the book's written by a man, the screenplay is written by a man, that it's directed by a man, and the movie involves men just sort of pushing her into decisions the whole time, and it's treated in this very kind of Hallmarkian, beautiful pastoral way, like the whole thing's very sweet and old-fashioned. Like, good thing that they're here for this. Yeah. Like, good thing they're helping her out. Yeah, and um, and she never really has any agency, and I'm like, this thing is really toxic. 
but it's wrapped <laughs> in this incredibly pleasant package. So it's, you almost feel like were you to complain about the movie or get angry about it, people would be like, what's your problem? Like, why don't you love this you pleasant like to feel movie? feel good about good things? Yeah, like- and, um, and for me, that's the kind of movie that's much more insidious. And I find those kind of unchecked, insidious messages much more of a problem than, like, things that are, like, so obvious in their tropes and so trope-aware where you can, like, pick apart and be like, well, I like Deadpool, but I don't like the damsel in distress trope. And, um, you know, like... like Jupiter Ascending is, like, a good example, I yes, think, of... That is high-key trash, <laughs> definitely. self-aware, like, high-key um, trash movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and my point is that, that a lot of... I think a lot of male filmmakers, unfortunately, just nobody ever is like, but why, you know, like, why the girls in the cutoffs? Like, why the American flag? Like, what does it mean to you? Like, you need to interrogate, not that you can't do this, but like, you need to interrogate why this is a thing for you. And then obviously, like, the racial stereotypes, it's like a real thing that needs to be, like, you need to look in the mirror and ask yourself why you are (laughs) perpetuating this, which, of course, people are not always willing to do. Um, yeah, I feel like Michael Bay is kind of more straightforward. It's like, why do you have a girl in cutoff jeans, bro? Because it's sexy, and I like yeah. long legs. Why the American flags, America, bro? Like, yeah, it's but like, there's, there's never no going to be a layer. Pretense. There's never going to be a layer beyond that. Like, why for me? You know, because the the, the assumption is right. that it's blanket. It's for everyone. Everyone likes this, surely. You know, every single yeah. person can put themselves into this hetero male gaze, um, no question, because everybody else is in fact trained to do this. You know, like sure. by default, everybody else has had to train themselves to be able to do this. So, um, I think it's the difference between a game like um, like the Zelda franchise and the Dead or Alive franchise with video games, because they're like, oh no, Link's like this great avatar. The player can insert themselves. It's like, but Link still, despite being fairly androgynous to some degree, is still a guy. He's always referred to by he pronouns, and he always has to rescue the princess. So you can only imprint yourself to some degree. Mm-hmm. So, but they're like, it's a universal story versus the dead or alive. They're like, yo, why are women all wearing skimpy outfits? Because we find that sexy. You don't have to buy it. We know it's offensive, but this is what we'd like to do. Is it good? No, it's, it's probably far more problematic than whatever Zelda's doing, but they're trying to play it off. Like, Oh, this is a universal story versus this is our thing. And this is just how we mm-hmm. do things here, mm-hmm. which again, it, it doesn't get off the hook, but I think everyone can admit that, they never tried to sit there and act like they were trying to do anything deeper than have women in skimpy outfits, right? Punching ninjas. Yeah. And <laughs> it's also like, it's also try- about like the conditioning because Zelda's off, also a game that you would play at a younger age. So when you're when you sort of have less questions, or you're sort of picking that stuff apart less, and you're internalizing it more. Whereas I feel like you know with something like GTA, where you're like, well, everything about this is like. super wrong you know it's like you are literally like running over sex workers in that game so like some people are like that is awful i i kind of think it's awful um but i've also like i also think that like gta mod videos are hilarious like and they will never (laughs) stop being funny to me especially if like there's a really good soundtrack to them um but it's like that's like that is supposed to be like you know a 16 or 18 plus game depending on the region not that yeah. it always is. There's obviously people younger than that playing it, but like, mm-hmm. it is clearly labeled as like an upsetting thing for adults. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's always marketed as like this isn't. We're not going to sit here and say that these are great things. We're giving you the ability to, and <laughs> sure, we're enabling it, which is bad. But 
again, that doesn't ever seem to come off as anything other than what it's supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, so it's kind of like pur- purposely objectionable, like you said. Yeah, and I, I, it's like obviously this is this is not really an endorsement for any of this media. It's kind of like um, you'd have to go a couple steps back, sort of like to the childhoods of all these creators, and be like, okay, but but where did this start? Where did yes? How did how did you get interested in this in the first place? And I think that's a step that a lot of people aren't necessarily willing to take, where they're like. Okay, I think, I think the reason this appeals to me is because this trope appeals to me, or you know, and I just, and this may be very biased, but I just feel like what I've seen from sort of fandom spaces is that people, and not necessarily the younger fans, because younger fans can like fall into like very big holes of like being incredibly offensive online, and then like, and then getting just like completely burned, and then and then not having the coping skills to deal with it, but. Um, <laughs> Adult fandom spaces, I think, typically lean on the side of people having to be aware of what tropes and kinks are, you know, resonating with them or motivating their work. So I, I find that very interesting, as, you know, as creators. Yeah, actually, I was thinking of um, what you were talking about. Brooklyn, I, I saw Silence recently. Just someone gave me free tickets. I would not have seen it otherwise. Yes. And... It is, like, so, like, I've only read one review of it that was like, this is imperialist nonsense. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, yes, thank you. Thank you, someone, for saying it. It's just watching, I'm watching Andrew Garfield be sad for, like, three hours that Japanese Whoa. people are dying. Like, And it's and the POV is obviously from the point of view of the priests, I'm, I would imagine. Yeah. I haven't seen it. I'm going to see it, but, like, um... I mean, it's Scorsese. Somebody, Scorsese is like a director that I have. I I both think is a great filmmaker, and I have loads of problems with his messaging, like always. Uh, yeah, it was actually interesting. I, my the the lady I work for is a BAFTA member, so she gets tickets to the screening. So I actually saw him. I saw Scorsese and his editor and the screenwriter were there for like a Q and A afterward, and they were talking about how like how they really felt like that every shot in the movie was really essential. And I was like, man, that was, that was a long movie. <laughs> <laughs> I would not, I would not typify Scorsese's camera work as essential or <laughs> I, I would typify it as extremely, um, and, and nobody can say no to me and nobody can cut. I paid for this shot. I paid for this jib, and so we're definitely using it. I mean, it would almost put him at the other end of the, I mean, that's great that he is confident in his work, but but I also think it's important, no matter how old you are, for somebody to tell you no at some point and to be like, you don't need. I know we paid for this scene, but we can also cut it, or we can put it on like the DVD extras. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of that going on recently for the uh, DVD cuts, <laughs> um, because apparently Suicide Squad and Batman v Superman weren't good, but they were far better with the extensions, and it kind of makes you. And most people say these movies were already bloated, so it's kind of kind of makes you wonder why did you cut that scene where someone explains something, but you left that lingering shot of like a boat or something. Like you right. don't. It's not that it was gratuitous; it was just pointless. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, as with I think any of those giant IPs, you know, like the Marvel, the DC, the Star Treks, the Star Wars. There's uh, no one person I think gets any kind of. There is no one like authorial 
um, vision anymore. I think it's very much by mm. kind of corporate committee. That doesn't necessarily mean that the result will be bad. Um, I've actually enjoyed, I've enjoyed for different reasons, both of the last Star Wars films. And that might be controversial to not like pick one. So some people are like, oh, oh, The Force Awakens was much better and Rogue One was awful. Or like, oh, Rogue One is the kind of Star Wars they should have always been making and The Force Awakens is like fan fiction. I've seen both sides of that equation, but I liked both of them. Um, yeah, I liked Rogue One. I loved Force Awakens. Yeah, like, I, I, ha- I definitely think I enjoyed, well, tonally, I think I enjoyed The Force Awakens more. I had script I had script issues with both of the films, um, <laughs> and I had some casting, I won't get into that deeply, but I had some casting <laughs> issues with Rogue One, but also, also a, a lot of casts that I really loved that I don't feel got to do or say enough, and there wasn't enough banter mm-hmm. and enough comedy. Um, but I, I did see somebody say something really funny about, I can't remember where I saw it, but somebody said, like, essentially all Star Wars films are basically just a ship going somewhere and trying to get shields lowered. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's the plot of all of them. I'm like, yeah, it kind of is. Yeah, I saw a criticism. Well, it wasn't really a criticism. It was was really a defense, but people were like, you know, you really don't get to say that The Force Awakens was just a copy of the first Star Wars unless you acknowledge that literally every movie follows the same beats to the point that, like... (laughs) You can match up certain times people will fall down or go to a desert place or like this or that, that like one was the same, four was the same, but five kind of copied four and two kind of copied one. So seven copying four is not really that bad. And Yeah, I just also just... like, I just, this is going to sound so sacrilegious, but like I'm a trackie and I adore the Star Wars films and they, and they very much like tracked my childhood, but like barring the extended universe like the films themselves are not that deep like they are very much like westerns in a kind of uh you know uh hero's journey tradition and the yeah the superimposing this enormously like convoluted narrative on what are really simple hero stories i think is not that helpful like the force awakens i was like i could have done without like another death star copy being destroyed (laughs) but otherwise I had logic issues. I had logic questions, but like, I just loved that cast and I found them all like very, I was like, these people feel really A-list. Like they just feel like new movie stars, like people that have been pulled up from different like indie things and they all feel like they're ready to be movie stars. Um, The Rogue One, I just liked a lot of that cast very much, but like obviously tonally it's, I feel like the first half, the first hour wasn't necessarily that entertaining to be honest. Like, it kicked in mm-hmm. for me like about halfway through, um, and the and the kind of ending I knew for some reason I just knew like three <laughs> like three years ago. But I think it's also because the type of the type of film it is, you kind of expect it to follow a certain type of pattern. Um, so I think knowing that I didn't invest emotionally in in the characters like I would have liked to. Having said that, I've read like very good fic, um, so I feel like. You know, it's not necessarily even fix-it-fix, but, like, I feel like it still does the job of generating fanishness, at the very sure. least. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm very delighted with some of the casting. Like, I'm just like, oh, I really like seeing Diego Luna in such a big part. Um, I wish Riz mm. Ahmed had, had, like, a larger part, but, like... And I like... So I'm wondering... Huh? Um, 
So I haven't seen Rogue One, but I'm wondering if oh. <laughs> they're just kind of like a. Uh, oh, go ahead. I, I, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to talk. A, I'm not going to do spoilers just in case. Like. Oh yeah, for the <laughs> listeners, I don't personally mind. Um, but I was just going to say <laughs> on that is, I wonder if some of the difference in characters and tone is that Star Wars tend to have like a template for how their stories go, and normally characters introduced in the first set, it's normally going to be a trilogy. So we don't know everything we need to know about Ray, Finn, and Poe, but we're probably going to find it out in 8 and 9. Yeah. Versus the characters from Rogue One, it's like, they, I don't know if they borrowed some of their structure so that they don't always you don't feel as invested because they didn't leave the hooks for a second and a third. Yeah. But they didn't really give you the cap like they normally would. I mean, I think I it's, it's a bit that, and it's a bit the cast is, the sort of central cast is much larger. So instead uh, of sort of caring about three or four characters, you're sort of seven or eight um, who get sort of small character introductions. And I think, you know, my kind of biggest, my biggest issue with it, this, and having said that, I've still seen it twice, um, is it, I think it could have been, I think it could have been a lot funnier. And it does have some comedy, but there's sort of only one funny character. And it would have been fun for there to be a bit of a banter between multiple characters. Sure. I just don't think you can, you can never like have enough funny lines in anything. I don't, I don't think there's like a cutoff. I don't even, I don't really like, I, I saw Manchester by the sea today and, um, uh, which I have, I'm like, I feel like the only person in America that's like, in addition to all the behind the scenes, like really problematic stuff going on with that film. Um, I found the whole thing really performative. Like for me, that was not, I did not feel like that was authentically um, about authentic. I did not. I personally am not a big lover of like super grim, uh, sad, sacky indie dramas. Like, <laughs> like I came, I kind of came fair. from the more like indie background. Like I had like a weird mom that like tried to steer me away from things like Spielberg and stuff and make me watch like kind of, I, I remember seeing like Wings of Desire at like 12 years old and then like do the right thing. And I was like, I'm going to be a director. So I remember like there was a period when I was like <laughs> mostly watching indie films. And then at some point, I think I got polarized kind of like towards the end of like undergrad, beginning of grad school where I was like, I just want to make fun stuff and I want it to be <laughs> genre. And I think like people shit on genre too much, but um, I found Manchester by the Sea relentlessly miserable and um and i'm not sure it did not grab me in an emotional place it was like it felt very like intellectually removed i think a lot of people actually found it very effective um but but i think it was like a middle class hot take on like working class grief and you know uh and also like a lot of beats repeating and you know like i say that and i think kenneth lonergan's a great writer but like um it did not work on me as I guess about that, um, but yeah. So I think like this thing that I that I talk about sometimes is I don't like dramas that are less funny than real life, and I think that real life yeah. has a lot of comedy in it because people are coping a lot. Uh, yeah, real life's hilarious. Real, real life <laughs> has to be time. hilarious because if it wasn't hilarious, you would just cry yourself to death all the time. Yeah. You know, I mean, like it's it's kind of emblematic. You kind of see that, like at funerals. At least from all the funerals I've been to, they're normally followed by essentially like some kind of big banquet. Mm -hmm. um, and people, you know, everyone's sad, but you, the, the, the sound you hear more often than anything is laughter at these things because people are like, remember when so-and-so did this and that to the point that like you can catch people on the day that 
their loved one passed, and especially if it's something they knew that was coming, they're going to say something that if anybody else said it would be deeply offensive and definitely too soon. But for them, it's kind of like, you're coping, but you also said that in kind of a funny way as a joke. So part of me is laughing, but part of me is like, you're, you're all right with me laughing at that because you said it to make me laugh, right? Um, so if you see like a movie or a show or a game or something that's just sad the whole time, you're like, this isn't real. Someone... There's always one person that's going to try to crack a joke. Maybe it'll fail. Yeah. You know, but someone's going to say something. Yeah. And I, it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to invalidate like the kind of grief porn. Like, I feel like a lot of people need grief porn. Like it, it's a release. So like, I think that film will be probably for most people much more effective than it was for me. I, I personally like don't like oh no, but having said that, I really want to see Moonlight, but I feel like that's going to be like really depressing. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yes. So, like, I don't want to say, and this is the thing with kind of everything, is just because I don't like something doesn't mean, it's like you said before, I'm rooting for the person that does like it and and get something out of it. Um, And I think that ultimately that's, there has to be a a range of material because people's tastes don't all align. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um... It's kind of yeah. It's kind of like a nice, neat bow for that line of conversation. I didn't have a follow up to that at all, <laughs> but um, I guess we do have a few other questions for you though. Um, since it's quote interview, and I can't do the air quotes hard enough for people to hear. Um, but you also you you've done work on the Flash too before, right? Yeah. So I um, I um, came about in a weird way. How did that happen? Um, I wrote a feature script that was uh, about a superhero as a comedy. It's like an intersectional superhero <laughs> comedy. Um, and, uh, and it got some, some sort of visibility and traction uh, in Hollywood. Uh, and um, <clears throat> the people at the flash saw it. I can't remember how, I think my manager maybe got it to them. Um, and uh that was kind of crazy. Like that happened really fast. And they basically like needed some freelancers, uh, on, on various episodes They kind of had a, a gap where they didn't have enough people for the writer's room. Um, and I came in and, and did like three weeks in December of 2015. And I, I just like flew in from the UK and joined this writer's room that was in process was, which was kind of a fun and interesting experience um, and there were, there were like freelancers on the episode, um, before mine who are now actually like writer producers on the show. Um, and they are very awesome guys. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was a fun process because, um, I, I am a fan of the flash and I was somebody that watched it religiously prior to writing for it. So I knew the continuity, um, and the tone of my writing for this feature script was was aligned with it very well and and i had written the script before the flash had gone into production so um it just happened to be like quite in the same tone uh and just yeah it was nice because like you could see they had like all the scripts for the episode the episodes that hadn't been shot yet but like leading up to mine um and then they had like some story ideas for the episodes that were coming afterwards and they give me spoilers. They give me spoilers like so far in advance. So like (laughs) to the end of season two, beginning of season three. Oh, wow. Which, which I had to sit on for like a year, um, like at least half a year, but I think a year. 
do you guys watch The Flash? I I know, but I'm way behind on it, so whatever. And, and sadly, like <laughs> after after I did my episode, I think I started to to watch the rest of the season, and then stuff on Uncle got so crazy that I haven't had a chance to catch up. But like I've saved, I've stored it with like all my Supergirls and Arrows and Flashes and and Legends of Tomorrow, and I've like they're all like stored in a bundle on my TV. Huh? They're all tied together now. Yeah. So yeah. So I need. So like I actually kind of have to catch up. You sort of have to do a couple episodes of one and then switch to the other, so you're not like getting out of sync continuity wise. Yeah. Um. Well, do you see a big um difference between like uh, writing superhero fiction and sitcom fiction? Um. So what's interesting for me is that I find genre a lot easier than than sort of contemporary. Uh, okay. The way my kind of into writing comedy involves thinking of it as a very genre exercise um, and getting like kind of heavily into the tropes behind comedy. Um, and that's kind of like Ollie, my co-writer on Uncle, um, is is more of a kind of contemporary comedy drama guy. Like he, I'd almost say like his taste leans more like Alexander Payne-ish um, and like sort of d- darkly satirical, very realistic uh, and and I lean towards this kind of sci-fi fantasy genre universe. And so when we come together on Uncle, we're kind of trying to marry those two sort of tones or, or sensibilities about writing together. Um, so the show secretly has a lot of like genre-savvy stuff. It's got a lot of like like trope nods. Um, and, you know, we're, we're very, very aware of, of sort of like comedy structure like we're we're, okay. we're we're thinking heavily about like thinking about it in a kind of a traditional sense if that makes sense so um i think on a, on english tv surprisingly it's it's sort of odd because it most english tv shows don't think of the kind of three-act structure or four-act or five-act whatever you know is the american sort of way of doing it and we're quite strict about that and we write it in in this very american way and then we put english people we have english people saying the dialogue so people are like oh this wonderfully british show how do you guys nail the british voices (laughs) like we don't really i mean we obviously like you know dialogue wise we because we both live here and all these english we try to get it as accurate as possible but it's not it's not so much for us about like trying to make it as english as possible we're like we just want this really structurally sound comedy um, and so if anybody thinks we're being hacky, we're being in- hacky intentionally. <laughs> That's very, we're very much leaning into that. It's a satire, bro. <laughs> I was going to ask you a bit, like, what the challenges are of being American and writing for a British audience, but I guess you have, since you have a co-writer, to kind of... Oh, you know, it's funny you say that. Um, Ollie's got sort of a weird backstory, which is he, he's English. He's English parents, but he grew up in France. He went to, like, one of those American schools... Um, uh-huh. And he, and then he went to grad school for film in the states. He's completely lost his accent. He he has <laughs> no idea what words are English and what words are American. And I am typically not the one who's bad about accidentally using American slang. It's usually Ollie, um, <laughs> or it'll be sometimes the both of us. But like, well, what's interesting is like because things are changing because of the internet. Um, there's more kind of a this this like internet slang usage that's very global like like um you know when i was playing uh i was i was doing like um 
melee games with somebody in Singapore. <laughs> and like when he would text me, um, you literally could not tell that he wasn't American from the way he talked because everything was like, like, that's pretty fucked up, bro. You know, and it's like, it was only when you spoke to him, you could, like, hear his Singapore accent. But, like, there, there was just this kind of common, like, internet parlance that everybody, you know, like, the way everyone speaks on Twitter, on Reddit, um, it's just right. like everybody kind of knows it now. So, so what we're finding is that we're putting things into the script for some of the younger characters where we're like, we think that English people use this now even if it's not an english slang expression and what we'll find is that like our actors who are in their like teens or 30s are totally comfortable using it and then we'll get somebody like on the the producing staff who's older and they'll be like this word is an american word and we'll be like it's not an american <laughs> word anymore um not anymore. it's now <laughs> this kind of global usage word so um sometimes there's a generational clash with like how we're using language on the show and it but it all gets vetted like every single every single piece of slang gets vetted by somebody who either says like i think this is within a tolerance or no an english person would never say that but like when i moved okay. here i moved here like 10 years ago and nobody used the term douchebag like they just didn't know what it was and now everybody says it so that's oh, that can only America, be from american tv huh <laughs> go us i guess yeah <laughs> yeah we have that going for us <laughs> So that's our, you know, that's our chief export. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Okay. Well, yeah, I always uh, wondered about the difference in um, slang between the two regions. Um, I mean, it's... I, I definitely... Oh, no, no. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just definitely see more of a crossover, um, especially... I, I've done music with people from across the pond and from Britain and somewhere else. I can't remember where, but I didn't know that they weren't American until I heard them speak and I'm like, Oh, you have an accent. Where are you from? That doesn't sound American. They're like, it shouldn't because <laughs> I'm not from there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's also so. like England itself is so regional. Like it has so many, I think, I don't think Americans can even understand the scale of regionalism in England. Like, like there are so many different, very specific accents just within London um, that all have like their own dialects and their own like sets of slang. And then like you go outside like three hours, for, you know, like one hour on the train or like three hours by car or something from London and you get completely different accents. And it's not like like where you might get a regional accent in the States where it's like a whole state has like a particular right. accent. And then you like move to the next state or the next region and it's starting to shift um, because the because it's just people who have been speaking English for like a thousand years so it's, it's really really like morphed in every area to its own thing yeah it always throws me off that there's i mean just even within pennsylvania how, how much of a difference there is between pittsburgh and philly um i mean i used to always get in fights with people about some of their dialect choices and it's yeah. funny how much of it is exactly the same except for some vowel sounds or letters and yeah. slang terms and then we always make the jokes about uh like inner city New York, their slang or Maryland's slang, it's so wildly different from Pittsburgh that I'm like, you can't have possibly been, you can't have grown up at the same time I did. And yeah, and but they it's, did, it's yeah. And I, I think also just like, <clears throat> if you have like immigrant parents, um, it that can that can like change the the dialect situation so much in your family, um, or Definitely. just sort of import a whole nother set of 
words. Like I, you know, like I moved around at like seven schools in seven years. I've lived in like Southern California and then I lived in uh, Texas and then um, and then I went to school in Boston and then I moved to New York. Um, And like what's been what's been imported into my vocabulary, you know, like growing up was um, Spanish, uh, a bunch of Yiddish words like A-A-V-E, white Texas slang. Um, and then like Boston, you know, like words like sketchy. Um, and if you don't use them, like people don't understand what you're even talking about. So, uh, just learning, like, I think maybe, and that actually is probably goes back to why I'm actually, um, I think have an ear for dialogue and writing dialogue for like different regions is I've had to code switch so much with moving, um, as a kid that I think it's just kind of all over the place now. Those are four very different Yeah. So yeah, geez. Yeah, I had a nice laugh the other day. Um, I've been speaking of watching whole shows. I was thinking about it before, but I've been I kind of binge watched Criminal Minds. Uh, it's a great procedural show, uh, crime procedural, and I just kind of have it on in the background. But yeah, one of their seasons, their like boss of the season, like the final boss of the season, took him to pit. Like he was doing crime in Pittsburgh at one point, and then they come back there in a later season. I'm like, ooh, I'm gonna see Pittsburgh. You see like the skylines and stuff, and you know it's just all filmed in Los Angeles though. But the the thing I noticed like instantly, like, okay, your police force is diverse. I'll ignore that. That's whatever. But no one has the accent. No one's saying Dan Tan. No one's a Yinzer, despite the fact that you're supposed to be downtown Pittsburgh. And it, it's not good. No one else in the country is going to realize that these aren't what our cops sound like. But the couple, like the five percent of people watching, say that's that's not how that guy would talk. That's not how she would say that. So it's always funny to see the dialects. And I find that really interesting. Like, um, I don't know if you've seen. There was a show called Rookie Blue. It might still be on. I don't know. But it was like, I think it was made by like some Canadian company and NBC Universal. It was clearly set in Canada, but they were trying to be so low key about it. Like they were trying to make it so you might believe it's some like generic American city. So they were like really clamping down on their accents. And then like if they needed to like give money to each other, they would like not shoot the money. So you couldn't see it was like Canadian money. And then, but they would just, they would just like have those weird slip ups every so often where it's like, this cast looks totally wrong for an American cast. And like these accents are, there's something a bit like fishy, like they're a bit too bland or something. Like they were trying to do this like Canadian standard thing that sounded, and they were all kind of Canadians that had worked a lot in Hollywood. So they had those like weird, nearly like Hollywood accents. Which the only people who have an accent like that are people that aren't from anywhere else. Like you're either from Hollywood or you're from another, a vastly different region and you're faking it. I feel like I have that accent a little bit. <laughs> I have this like weird American standard generic. Standard, like Midwest generic yeah, accent. Yeah, and, and my dad has this very, my dad is from California, but like apparently in the 40s in California, everybody was from the Midwest. So they, they all <laughs> really sound Midwestern. And like my dad says like major instead of measure. Even though it's been, like, years, you know. Like, he's he's always said, like, major and leisure and stuff. And I'm like, where are you even getting that from? Like, you were born in Southern California. (laughs) Anytime I hear someone, like, say you're going on, like, a a tour or a museum or a bus tour. Anytime I hear someone say tour, and I'm like, you don't need to pronounce the O and the U. 
it seems to be like a southwestern thing and a midwestern thing to pronounce yeah they're like oh i'm going on a tour i'm like oh yeah what is that what is that i feel like that's the same region that says pin instead of pen oh get me a pen yeah oh that yeah dialect is super interesting to me it's always fun to try to guess where someone's from i, I tried to know the, the canadian accent when i was in toronto once and I got a weird look from this guy because you saw he had that weird, like, are you faking this or are you from here and haven't been here in a while? <laughs> and either way, what are you trying to pull right now? Because I wasn't trying to pull anything other than just try to trick the guy. Just see if I could yeah, do it. Yeah, just trying to so fit like, in. Oh. Yeah, it's kind of, the, the Canadian accent from what I can tell, other than like the boots, like the, the very stereotypical thing, some of their draws kind of like Pittsburghian and Midwestern to a degree. So. It's fun. It's fun. It's not fandom related, but you know, there's probably some language. <laughs> yeah, there there's is some language fans. There's some over. <laughs> I think there is actually a lot of of people that are fanish about language. Um, the cut, like the whole conlang community. Yeah. Which one? Like, like um, invented languages, like people who oh, like, try to learn Dothraki or Elvish or. That's like, a lot of work. Yeah. But they're always based on, they're always like, the framework is always something real. It's never, it's never like totally invented from scratch. It's always like, whatever that um, linguist specialty languages tends to influence what it's based on. Yeah, like if you look at like, um, like Lord of the Rings fantasy languages, like Elvish is based a lot on Finnish because Tolkien thought that that, that was like a very beautiful language, like, Dorvish is based on more like angry sounding Germanic languages. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so is all is all Elvish based on like Tolkien's version? Uh I I think that, I think that the kind of D D I think Tolkien actually did um solidify a lot of conventions of Elvishness. Um there wasn't that much fantasy literature before he wrote. I think there's like sort of one I can't remember the name of it, but there's sort of one big um, fantasy book from sort of the late 18, I mean, the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, um, and then like some folk tales. And he really solidified like his concept of elves, which I think kind of had a direct effect on the sort of D&D version of elves and all the role playing games and all the video games. So I, it is, it is definitely from Tolkien's mind that we have like this modern concept. I think a lot of earlier concepts of elves were sort of like gobliny, little and <laughs> like like elves and the shoemaker like like yeah. Santa. and I, there's also a lot of like a lot of unclarity about fae and elves and different types of fairies like they're, they're not necessarily really separate things depending on depending on whose mythology you're looking at yeah i think link from zelda is a fairy oh no no they, they changed that didn't they he was he was he was an elf for a fairy originally, and then, like, at some point, did Nintendo come out and be like, "No, he's Hyrulean. Get it, That's... get it straight." <laughs> Didn't that? Yeah, I can't I'm remember that happening. Like, when did that happen? <laughs> they were Fuck really Hyrule. adamant. They were like shitty about it. Like, you're like, "Oh, yeah. I'm sorry." What's well, Hyrule's a country? I don't, I don't or like a, it's a region. Like, I'm an American human. He's a Hyrulean elf fairy yeah. thing. But they got a bit like they got a bit touchy about. Did you have you heard? I not haven't heard any more. But do you remember when there was that announcement? There was like. Oh yeah, we're gonna have a multi-part Game of Thrones style Zelda series on TV. I wish they would have. I wanted that. And uh, but I was <laughs> like, I was like, there is no way on earth that tonally that's gonna be anything like 
Game of Thrones. Like, especially with the way, like, Nintendo is, like, very locked down about their IP and, like, the image that they present. Like, I'm, like, at best, tonally, that'll feel like BBC Merlin. Like, that's as dark (laughs) as it could ever get without... Because it's, like, what makes Game of Thrones Game of Thrones is, like, rape and murder. And I can't imagine any of that happening in... (laughs) In a Zelda TV kill some chickens, like yeah. <laughs> I have I, killing chickens. I, I I'm assuming you guys are not old enough to have seen that original, um, or maybe you've seen it on YouTube, but that original Zelda cartoon. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Princess. Excuse me, princess. <laughs> um, it was part of like a block of entertainment that had like a live action. It was like a live action frame story that was Mario and Luigi and then like cartoons interspersed. And and I remember like being desperately into this show when I was really little. Um but Wasn't it, the uh, Super Mario Super Show? Yeah, it, that's like, exactly what Mario. it was. Um and it and it and it is really awful. Um but at the time and I remember shipping it really bad. I mean, I was really little, so I wasn't I didn't get into like, oh, this is he's really a sex pest. Like he just he just wears her down, like he. <laughs> I just, There's no actual chemistry there, um, but yeah, you know. Cartoon Link was definitely that, whereas Game Link is kind of like I did the thing. I'll see you later. I'm really, I'm really not here for any reason other than I really like this golden triangle, and yeah. that's what I'm here to fix. Yeah, Nintendo has a lot of stuff with gender they need to work out. Um, I mean, that that goes to a much larger conversation about, like, where <laughs> where Japan is with, like, the gender revolution, which I think, you know, uh, uh, I don't think Americans are in any position to say, like, we've mastered this, um, <laughs> but, there, but there is a conversation, there is some conversations that only seem to be starting now um, with media, uh, and uh, as somebody who, <laughs> as somebody who is really into, like, um, BL comics and stuff like that, like a lot of that um, kind of terrible gender stuff and like assault stuff is obviously like a, a cornerstone of a lot of storytelling in yeah. in those as well, um, which can make it hard to find stuff that you actually like. So um, there's sort of a bigger issue about uh, the way, the way, you know, and maybe this is partly like, me having Western superego and criticizing like Japanese id in comics, but um, yeah, I think that there, there is a long way to go with them um, as far as like the consent conversation in how love stories are told <laughs> in Japanese media. Um, and uh, I mean, I think that's true, obviously, in Western media too. So I don't want to sure, make sure. it sound like I, I'm coming from any position of authority on that, but. Oh no, I was just referring to the fact like Nintendo seems to be particularly behind, even if you compare them to like other Japanese studios or American studios or other video games, it just seems like they're kind of not even, I don't know what their sensibilities are personally. It just seems like, Hey, we have this formula. We're going to stick with it. Should we fix it? Probably, but we're not gonna to the point that like you have peach getting captured a lot, but then within their same media, like, well, also she's as good at soccer as Mario and can fight as good as Mario and can drive a motorcycle as well as Mario. And she kind of gets captured and doesn't try to do anything about it. So you have this weird dynamic of, that's where people get the, the whole thing. Like theory. at some point you have to assume that she would rather be captured. Yeah. You know? This is just yeah. a show now. <laughs> it's not, there's, 
there's I don't know I, I, that's a it feels like a plot hole at this point yeah because they won't answer any questions it's just kind of like oh we're doing this again all right I guess this is it's winter come get Peach and I'll come get her and she'll do whatever she's doing yeah she always and, just kind of seems to be somewhere I don't know and that's sort of an old an ancient an ancient trope um I feel has its uses at some points but it you know is incredibly overused in stories and uh, absolutely it is not all that interesting <laughs> and yeah. uh it's literally the bare bones story they come up with they're like hey go do the thing you've been doing for 20 years here's some brown blocks and some mushrooms have fun yeah. yeah, I think there there are some, I, I know I've seen some critique lately, like, about how applying, like, tired romantic cliches to queer stories can help, like, revitalize those, because, like, like queer romance doesn't ha- necessarily have some of those cliches, and, like, to an extent, like, then those damsel in distress stories are okay, but still then, like, I've seen a lot, like, of things still become kind of tropey like, um, in different ways. Like, mm-hmm. Princess Princess Ever After is a comic about, like, a, a princess who saves another princess from I've a tower. I've read it! I've read it! Yeah. Yeah. It's really cute. And it's really cute. You saw, we, we, I got it at Comic-Con. Or I showed it to you at Comic-Con. Remember, it was at the Oni Press booth, Dom? No, I, I read it on the beach. Oh, you read it. Oh, yeah, I lent it to you. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um... I was just reading a different comic that someone recommended to me, Motor Crush, and it's also got a, like, a kind of more masculine-coded black queer woman protagonist rescuing a, like, soft, femmy, like, fat, white protagonist. Yeah. They're like, is this going to be a new thing that we do? Like. I, and, and so, and here's the complicated thing. So obviously, like, this is the id of the creator. This is something that they're fantasizing about. So, <laughs> so like, I don't want to, I don't want to get in the way of people, like, pursuing their bliss. But, like, that that's also, you know, people have to, especially when it comes to, like, the racially coded tropes of, like, um, the, the dark-skinned butch and the and the light-skinned femme and and how they're basically slotting into a heterosexual dynamic um yeah and and that is sort of like level one of the of the queer media i think um (laughs) i think that's level one of the storytelling because they obviously like it's not that queer if it's sort of um replicating hetero ships and and actually and i want to say like and this is going to cause like if this could potentially cause a lot of drama, but um, I am not that comfortable with, and and it's almost a squick for me, but like, it's such a thing for other people. I don't want to get in their way, like shipping it. But like when people ship same sex couples in the most heteronormative way possible, which is the, um, they're going to get married and either be dads somehow, or like moms somehow, biologically or like or they're gonna have a giant wedding and it's like the wedding fetish and the like insta family you know like parent fetish and i'm like you are taking something and it's like i understand that those things are very aspirational especially for a lot of younger people um so they're like i want to have a stable family life i want to have the big party wedding 
So I, it's like, I don't want to get in the way of people shipping that, but I'm also just like, you realize that you're just like trying to make these people straight. Like you could do anything. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, that's for me, actually why I don't like impact that much. Um, whereas, you know, if I, it's not like I'm like, Oh gross. Like that, that shouldn't happen. But, um, cause I feel like it within fic, you can pursue anything, even if it's like extremely strange. Um, but I, but I did see, and I think, have you guys watched Your on Ice? I have. <laughs> Dom, Dom. <laughs> what? What do you mean? Um, so that, that's kind of the thing. Here's what we have. Like, Your on Ice is like a canon uh, gay ship. Um, it is moving at a particular pace. The fandom thinks it's moving like 800 times faster than that. Like, they're like, they're literally married. And it's like, no, they... They know they're flirting. I mean, like, this is all ship tease. And people are like, but they're literally engaged. And it's like, but this is, sh- this is like, like, Japanese anime is so good at, like, fan service. And it's not necessarily textual. Like, it's it sort of vibrates at this textual and non-textual level. Um, but the, the way the fandom has gone, especially on Tumblr, is it's just like, they're married. Everybody's married. And, like, Yurio, the, the other competitor, is their kid. And it's like, you know, the My Son Yurio stuff. They're two, they're both gay dads, and Urias their son, even though he's like only a few years younger than them. And I'm just like I've a, seen person after person do this. Oh yeah, go ahead. They're not married. They're not married. <laughs> Did you think they uh, were married? That's what Tumblr led me to believe. Yes, <laughs> I thought they were getting married. They're I, they were married I mean, they might they might get married, but I also feel like that is a very Western end game. Like th- th- nobody on the show that's has said that's going to happen. Yeah, it's like um. I did see early on in the fandom and I was like, oh no, but the, it didn't end up this way. But like after episode, I'm going to spoil some stuff for you, Dom, because I'm just assuming that you're not I, desperate to watch this. Go, please, um, you could tell me how it ends. I, think I won't mind. Episode seven or episode eight, there's like the kiss. And it's like, first of all, we don't know if this kiss happened. It's a very liminal intentionally, I think partly to, to skirt around Japanese censorship laws, but partly yeah, also, partly also <laughs> to partly also just to kind of, be this ambiguous thing for the audience where you can read it the way you want to read it they probably yeah. kiss um and it's in public and it's like on the ice at a russian rink and then <laughs> i saw immediately people jump online and be like i really hope they address like russian homophobia next week and like i think like there's going to be a storyline about it i'm like you i i'm like i don't know if you're are we you watching the same show yeah i'm like are you young have you ever watched any like bl anime before like this is this has pushed it further than almost any show's ever gone and it's not that's just like not what's going to happen in the universe <laughs> it's not going to go that way and i remember saying that to somebody online i'm like this is not going to happen and they're like no because the the creators are really smart and because they know this and they know that and it's like because they're smart they must think like me and it's like but you're a western person and you're put you're pressing your western uh like structural like moral framework onto like Japanese creators and uh they have an end goal in mind but it might not be the one that you're after and so I I'm always much more uh, inclined to be like I'm open to the ending that you're going to give me rather than like it's got to be this and if it's not this I'm going to be really upset and really angry and I think a lot of people set themselves up for it because they were like literally like I think when we had one episode to go they were like I don't understand how they're going to do the whole competition and have time to get married at the end of this. And it's like, I mean, as somebody who works in TV, I'm like, well, if they want another season, they're not going to wrap 
up the entire series <laughs> at the yeah. end of season one. Uh, like that's the point. They won't have time they, for that. But, but there's so many disappointed people. And I'm like, I, I think this is partly, unfortunately, it has to do with the fact that there is not enough. There's just not enough media um, for people that don't see themselves all the time. Uh, and so people get can get very desperately, like, like hooked into the one or two things. You know, I think that happened a bit with Sleepy Hollow where, like, I think Sleepy Hollow and The Flash and when it was on briefly, um, Minority Report were the only, this is really niche, but, like, the only genre TV shows that had a black female lead and kind of a femme white guy. So, like, that particular dynamic, you know, getting to see, like, uh, soft male sexuality paired with... Uh, with um a kind of a more toppy woman um is not on a lot of shows and those three shows happened to be running at the same time and they all shared a fandom um so one i didn't know they had that going on I yeah i would have watched them yeah yeah um although <laughs> i much a little too much about myself <laughs> <laughs> um don't bother with sleepy hollow uh, sleepy hollow i'd say watch the first two seasons and stop um that yeah, would be my that. recommendation uh and, you know, I, I think Sleepy Hollow had everything going for it, and uh, we will see, but um, I feel like they took an amazing kind of bulletproof premise and then, like, did not... Dunk it in the toilet. They dunked it in the toilet. <laughs> I mean, it's like it basically had, like, interracial X-Files, but with supernatural stuff, which could have run for literally ten years. Um, and they started... Like the real supernatural. Yeah. And they... Like, they were, like supernatural. And they, they fiddled, and then they started sidelining the main character who was the point of view character and kind of making all the storylines be about the white guy and making all the and this is a problem with Sherlock where like it stopped being about a, a, a procedural mystery and started being everything about that main character all the plot lines revolved around him and they were all interpersonal mm. arcs related to him um so it stopped having any procedural element and I think with a genre show with that setup which is basically x-files with a buddy like a buddy cop x-files show when you lose the procedural element i mean i say that but fringe kind of managed to be interesting when it lost procedural element <laughs> barring barring fringe um it's <laughs> the fringe case <laughs> yeah uh i think because that and but the reason that fandom was so passionate you know and they were very active on tumblr and they still are is just the lack of media and like it's like of course you're gonna over identify with this character of course you're gonna like pour yourself into them and think of them as an avatar because, like, you have nothing else. Uh, and I think the thing with Yuri on Ice is it sort of came along at a time when, like, all the news was garbage and everything was terrible. Yeah. And then this, like, <laughs> wonderful, delightful show that took place in a universe where there wasn't homophobia and the creator came out and said, like, this is a universe where people aren't going to be shamed for loving what they love. Like, which everybody's just happy for people to love what they love. Um, the well, that's show, an amazing world. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and, and I think she's a very savvy, cre you know, it's like a, a writer and a writer-director. They're very savvy. Um, but I think when people get over-invested in shows, um, they can... Uh, and this is so complicated because I, I think that fans do need to have a dialogue with creators, but... Um, fans can try to steer the narrative of shows based on yeah, expectations. Yeah, that happens with um, and Really bad. <laughs> and it, it's... Obviously, we're in a new world now. Social media has changed things, and um, creators cannot 
expect that they will have no interaction with fans. Um, the, you know, it's sort of a question of like level of harassment <laughs> um, and, yeah. and level of expectation and understanding like the, the person creating this might not have the same headspace. So like, sure. I, you know, it's like the, the people who ship Sherlock and the people who write Sherlock are not similar in their life experience. Um, the material <laughs> that's extreme example. Yeah, that's an extreme example. The material appeals to both these group of people. It is like a sort of Venn diagram in the middle. Um, but why it's appealing, why it's sparkling, which is a, a word of you know my all of my writer friends and I use, which is we use sparkly a lot. Like why it's sparkly for this one group and why it's sparkly for this other group are different reasons. Um, and occasionally you'll get a creator that's sparkly, you know, things are sparkly for them in the same way they are for the fans, but I feel like it, it isn't often happening because most shows are created by middle-aged straight white guys and very fanish communities tend to be queer assigned female at birth people. Um, and that's what happened with Steven universe a lot is that that, that Venn diagram, like where the sparkle failed wasn't a different space. Like it, uh, you have a queer AFAB creator, Rebecca Sugar. Yeah. And she creates this great universe, which, yeah, it has a, a male character, has like the, 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 the yeah, axis. View, yeah. yeah. But like every other essential character is coded female, and you would could make the argument they're all women. But so now the problem is okay, now that you have, if you do the math, I don't know, probably like, over 30 possible ships or something, yeah. single ships. Now, if you make any of them canon, someone's going to be mad. Some <laughs> of them will be rooted in, like, this was problematic that you did this, and those ones are understandable. But some will just be like, we it's wanted yeah. Peridot and Amethyst, and you didn't give that to us. It's yeah. like, well... Or, or so like, I, you didn't... <laughs> or, like, not even canon, like, somebody, some creator for the show on their personal Tumblr to be cute drew like their own fan art and like that's you mean like adventure time yes um (laughs) and and that will sort of set people off and it's like you don't obviously like the kind of uh emotional and mental stability of all the fans can't be you know like you don't know what the emotional state is of, of this particular fan you don't know their age sure um and but they also, you know, may be so young that they don't have a sense of, like, what is appropriate impulse comp- control um, and how much you're allowed to engage. But, like, at the point where you're telling people they should die because they did <laughs> ship that's not yeah. canon. But, like, you need to get your priorities straight. Like, but I think that's also the thing is, like, that's why fic exists. Like, everything does not have to be canon. Fic exists so that you can transform that space and make it the universe that you want. Um you know, this Do you think we're running into a difference because, like, of so many young creators at this point? And I, I ask that because, you know, as our well, when this comes out, it'll be in the past. But as we're recording, we are at the end of our last president, who was black. And then some people point out, like, if you were born within a certain time, your whole waking life, you've had a black president. Um, and that I voted for him. I've never voted for a white man to be president in my entire mm-hmm. life. That's just primaries, maybe, but you know. So for someone who's, let's say, 12 or something, they've grown up in a time where a lot of their fan media has been at least vaguely welcoming to women. Mm -hmm. So My Little Pony, for instance, was real big, but then Adventure Time wasn't explicitly gross towards women. And then you get Steven Universe, and it's like, oh, hey, this is queer-friendly from the beginning. 
so and you're on ice queer friendly so to see a letdown is a lot different than for us who's like well we've seen garbage before and we oh know yeah this we're like garbage there, come, we garbage comes in cycles <laughs> yeah. so we're weathered by this storm but i wonder if some of the younger fans not to be that back in my day or kids these days because i'm still a kid essentially <laughs> in the grand scheme but i wonder if they just haven't been weathered by the explicit letdowns the way we have um I wonder because yeah, like I, I feel like you've actually named, I think you've named everything that's like good in that way. Um, I mean, those are big though. Yeah. But like, I, the ma- like. I would say like the majority of like mainstream nighttime genre stuff, which I feel like overlaps with, you know, because, you know, I know a lot of people that went into Steven Universe fandom, which is a children's show because there wasn't enough things in kind of nighttime genre television um, uh, that actually spoke to them. Um, and, you know, it's like there's things... There's a lot of things that are kind of post-racial. Like, like I would say, like, a show like Flash is post-racial in that it's got a, a diverse cast and they they flipped the races of some characters so that they added more diversity and, and had a knock-on effect. Like, oh, we're going to make Iris West black and now her dad's also black, so, so now there's two black characters on the show that were not in the comic. And they're huge characters and we're also going to add... Hispanic character. Um, so, so the ensemble is not just a bunch of white people, but the show does not get into intersectional politics at all. So okay. occasionally there will, there will be kind of a misstep where um, there is something that just would not happen in real life because it wouldn't go down like that in real life. You know, like people are walking around with privileges in this fictional universe that they would, would not have, you know, like, you know, it's like as an interracial couple, as like a black dad raising a white son, like people would have said shit to people at some point. Like there would have been <laughs> yeah, some pushback. There would have been like shitty stuff that people said. Um, and this is a universe where that kind of stuff doesn't happen. I don't, you know, I don't think that every show has to be intersectional. I think what would be good is a mix. Um, uh, but like, I, you know, I don't know. Steven Universe is so rare for me. Like, I think it's... I think people got very overinvested in it, partly because like it is such an anomaly on TV, and I feel like you can at any one time I can name you like a couple novels, a couple films, one or two TV shows okay. out of like a sea of thousands. You know, when you think about all the channels, the thousands and thousands of shows, and like you know, just shows that have some good rep in them, like you know, several Shondaland shows. Um, but it's like the you look, huh? And there's more coming, And there's more too. coming, but it's like you, you look at it and it's like a few creators that are responsible for most of that content. Um, you know, and I think the, the thing with the Steven Universe audience is like, they couldn't have hoped for a creator that was more in sync on the sparkle. But like, you'll never, when it gets into the ships, you, you'll never be able to account for like every ship. Like you won't, right. it's like, there's some you can plan for and then some you can't plan for. It. And I feel like they were very savvy about that stuff whereas i think the thing with something like sherlock is like well of course you ended up with that ship what did you think was going to happen what do you it's like (laughs) when you when you build a central couple that's nothing but belligerent like kind of bantering tension people will always ship it like yeah that's going to happen and and if you kind of ship tease it if you lean into that and then start doing a lot of gay jokes and then you suddenly pull away from it and start like no homoing all over the place like you will you will have angry fans and you if you're from a certain generation you'll be like what's wrong with these fans and if you're a fan you'll be like but it's you obviously did this on purpose 
but there's levels yeah. there's levels of awareness about the on purposeness like i think mm-hmm. um i think it's just like if you don't if you come from a, a sort of curative fan space and not a transformative fan space the f- the fact that people kind of live and die by their ships won't make any sense you'll just be like those people are crazy rather than like like women and people of color and you know, LGBTQ folk are starved for mainstream Definitely. comment, uh, mainstream content that speaks to them. So they latch onto the couple of things that will speak to them and then do a lot of creating, you know, fan fiction, fan art. Sure. Podcasts, etc. So how do you what? like, how do you approach that? Like as like someone who is both very fanish and also like a professional creator, like how do you, it's, it's complicated because it's complicated because I think up till now, I mean, people do actually ship our show a bit and we get, we'll get sort of like the way we set the show up. There's like a lead character and he's got at the beginning kind of three love interests and we sort of follow several lines on different love interests. And then there's one that feels like they're kind of the end game, sort of the OTP, but people have their opinions and like people, um, people will write into us and be like, is when's this girl coming back? When's this character? And you know, like which which ones are you gonna end up with? Um, and we've tried to we've tried to subvert that a little bit. And over time, more we wanted it. The lead character is like definitely a man baby character, but we've tried to actually have him have a lot of growth in the last couple seasons. And he gets called out on stuff like his his nephew is is more progressive and more of a feminist and calls him out like quite a bit on this stuff. And he's had women say to him, like, you don't know how to be friends with women. So he's actually, like, gone away and thought about that a little bit. And um, what we wanted to do was, like, ex-girlfriends don't just go away. They don't just leave the narrative. They stay and they become friends. And they're involved in his life and he's involved in their life. And it kind of, life continues. So um, you don't, you don't sort of get the, like, well, now she's done with and she's gone. Like, she still has a life and it's still on film. Um and I think moving forward, most of the stuff I have coming up is more genre. So like starting to get into the sci-fi fantasy type stuff. And I think um, especially this one project I'm working on with another um, British writer is very fanish. And I think <laughs> I think potentially we were like potentially our fandom could turn into like a raging level 10 <laughs> garbage fire. Like like it has the potential because it has and I think Rebecca Sugar is sort of encountered some of this, which is like, you don't want to give people what they want right away because you want people to watch. You need to keep spinning stories. Right. Um, so you can't get people together immediately. But like when people don't see a ship coming together immediately, they get stressed and they start like haranguing the creators for like, when's this going to happen? Is this going to happen? And needing, needing the reassurance. But that can like be spoilers that can ruin you wanting to surprise people. So people will write into us and be like, how is this going to end? And you're like, you can't, I can't tell you because I'm going to ruin it for all those other people that don't want to know. But there has to, so I think there has to be kind of like, there's some line you have to write where you have to be like, you're not imagining it. This is a canon ship, but I can't tell you how it's going to end because I will be ruining it. And also like relationships are messy and they don't necessarily I don't want to just break people up just to break them up for drama, but like people don't always stay together just because they get together. So like if you're, if you're having the dad fantasy, if you want them to get married, 
you know, if there's two male characters and you want them to have the big wedding and be immediate dads and have a child, um, that may or may not happen. So how do you manage people's expectations? I know that in, um, in Homestuck, it was, it was funny, like people were, when, um, these two characters, they were at the time, they were the only two canon, um, like queer male characters in a relationship. They had a messy breakup because they were teenage shitheads. Yeah. And, um, and people were jacked about it. People were not happy that Jake and Dirk had broken up, but to, to the point where at the end, at, at some point, like Andrew Hussey had to tweet, like, look, Jake Dirk is endgame. I'm not going to tell you how, how they get back together, and I don't know how they possibly could get back together. Right. But, like, and you as a fan are looking at this like, really? Like, this is a kind of unhealthy situation. Like, yeah, I don't know they could, but it, now I'm interested to see how you try. Like, <laughs> and that's the thing is, like, it's you do want fans that are passionate. You do want people that care deeply about the material and, and feel emotionally invested and will consume the thing you make. Um, there's a certain level at which it can't just be 100% uh, by committee. You can't just employ a bunch of free teenage um, fans <laughs> to co-write with you because, you know, like, the, the it is not an equal situation. You're There is a power dynamic difference and as a creator you can't um you can't think properly if your head is constantly full of like other voices um yeah so that was something that homestuck ran into because they, it started out as a kind of collaborative thing like the the creator would it because i don't know if you're familiar with it, the webcomic a, li- a little homestuck. bit i've never yeah. i know there's a game and a webcomic and i never could like quite get wrap my it's head around the, the, the sort of the <laughs> size of it so i was like i don't, uh, maybe i can't no, yeah, it's, it's a lot, but, um, I, um, it started, and I, and I started reading it long after it had lost its collaborative aspect, but mm. it began as, because he started out writing webcomics for a much smaller audience, and on, like, forums, so he would ask people, like, like, put up, like, a poll, like, what do you think should happen, like, what should Problem Sleuth do next, and people would vote, and then he would have to take the narrative from there. right in a way that made sense. And Homestuck started out like that. So that's why some of the beginning acts of it are very, like, there are just ludicrous things happening occasionally. And that informs the humor of the rest of the story, too. Um, but to, the, it got to a point where, like, in the third act, it was like, okay, so now you get to choose what the picture on Jade's shirt looks like, and that's the last time we're doing this. Right. <laughs> because this story is getting too complicated, and I can't have you guys voting, like, fly into the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the random humor only works to a point before people start to not, the suspension of disbelief goes away. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's one of the things where, you know, I think partly like that dynamic was him asking for input um, Mm -hmm. rather than people pressing input upon him. Um, (laughs) And again, I think that's one of the the reasons where I'm like, and I think uh, maybe some fans are not happy with like only in a fixed space, but I think that's what, I think that's what fic is for it's for you to kind of play in the universe and see if you can like nail the tone and match the characters or like take it in a wildly different direction you know like here's what I would do with it if it was mine um but ultimately like if it's not yours (laughs) you have to like uh it's so it's such a complicated like 
can of worms because there's 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 this animosity that that often develops between and I felt it obviously as well as like a viewer where you're like yeah you don't know you guys don't know what you're doing at this point and like you know <laughs> if I can just come in here and fix it, if you just listen to me um so I'm not immune to it I've definitely done it but like ultimately it's you didn't pitch it you didn't write it it's 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 easy to kind of give input into something that's already there on the page. Um, but if you're sort of taking it from scratch, uh, it's, it's a different, it's a different thing. And I think that's that for me, that's just kind of like the conflict of being both a fan and a creator is like, how do I reconcile those two different worldviews? And, and also just trying to write stuff for me that fulfills my fanish impulses and, and trying to move towards projects that, satisfy my fanish impulses and others at the same time and hopefully like don't become a garbage fire in the process <laughs> which I feel like is perhaps unavoidable unfortunately because I feel like no matter you know woe is me but like um even when you are a, a creator who is very interested in trying to do the right thing and not be problematic you will always have blind spots um, and even, even when you have like a sort of sensitive committee and you have sensitivity readers, um, you will fuck up at some point. So the question is like whether people can understand that like you can be an imperfect vessel for social justice and still like not be a terrible person or whether like every mistake that you make makes you a terrible person who should die on the trash fire. <laughs> Um, and I think uh, you can kind of tell the difference between creators who made a mistake and care about it and the ones who don't, yeah. um, especially with like apologies and even when people might not have that much uh, direct contact with their fans, you can kind of tell from a work like, okay, they did something problematic, but based on the fact that there's a lot more progressive things, we're not going to necessarily overlook that, but I'm going to give the person the benefit of the doubt that they were trying to be shitty like they should get better and let's hope they don't do it again yeah but uh, let's not throw them into the fire <laughs> based on this right away yeah let's see if let's let it trend first and then we can cut it off yeah i mean if you just start from a base of everyone is problematic and go from there um <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean i guess that mean that makes the people that are less look a lot better <laughs> yeah i mean Who's to say? And I think I think it's we're in a new world, obviously, like everything has changed now that, um, you know, we're moving away from traditional television and film into like a very digital space. Uh, and and I don't think we will ever go back to having as much kind of autonomy. Um, I think fans will always be more involved in the process at this point. So, I, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's also beholden upon um, creators to be aware of of how they're actually interacting with people and how how what they make actually affects people. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> We're definitely in that spot. Um, a lot to think about. A lot to think about. Uh, I don't know. I, <laughs> uh, I kind of felt like that's a, a nice, neat bow to put on it, though. Um, I mean, how are you two feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling I'm good. Pretty, I'm feeling kind of tired of myself. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I, I feel like I talked and talked and didn't let you guys talk at all. So um, I'm so glad you did that. This is 
people hear us twice a week. They know what we sound like. They know what our opinions are. We're here to try to get some other people and some other opinions. So, and plus that makes it easy to edit. So, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. well, again, we want to uh, say thank you for your time and stuff. Before we get out of here, do you want to hit the uh, listeners with some of our social media stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So I know yeah. how much you love it. <laughs> <laughs> it is always my favorite. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Character Rev, um, Character R-E-V, two R's in the middle, no spaces, no underscores, anything like that. Um, character reveal was taken. Um, you, can, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can find Dom at Brother Dom, B-R-O-T-H-A-D-O-M, on Twitter, Tumblr, anywhere else you want to find him. Um, yep, yep. Find me at Captain Steph on Twitter, at the Snow Queer on Tumblr. Um, you can find this podcast also on Facebook, um, just by searching for character reveal. You can follow it directly by going to our Simplecast page, which is characterreveal.simplecast.fm, or you can subscribe on any of your podcast catcher of choice, um, including iTunes now. Um Woo. Ooh, yeah, so and if you want to leave us a review or a rating, that'd be awesome. Um, and if you like the the things you hear us talking about, um, Dom and I both also write long, more long-form, like, geeky, intersectional feminist, like, blog post slash essay kind of writing for Lady Geek Girl and Friends blog, which is ladygeekgirl.wordpress.com. Check um, it out. And to follow me, Lila Vandenberg, my Twitter handle is Lila V. That's at L-I-L-A-H-V, all one word, lowercase. Uh, and Uncle is currently airing on BBC iPlayer, Netflix in the UK, Netflix Canada, Stan in Australia, and Hulu in the US. So yeah, that's that everything. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, you know, go follow us everywhere, be our friends, see what we do. We're trying to make the world a better place. That's the end game. We might we might be a month off. We might be 10 years off. Who knows? We'll get there when we get there, but we're trying to make the world at least more tolerable or something. <laughs> but we want to extend again, you know, for another time. Thank you so much, Lila, for joining us. We hope you had a good time. Um, listeners, we hope you love this one, too. And we'll be back every uh, week, twice a week, to schedule shifts because life is difficult. But we want you to have something. And until <laughs> next time, see you later. Bye.